Hello and welcome to this Global Situation podcast from International SOS, the leading medical and security risk management business. I'm Chris Giles. This is the podcast where we provide you with timely analysis and tactical insight for your organization. And in this episode, we're focusing on the regional impact of the ongoing conflict in Sudan. Although a recent ceasefire has allowed some people to escape, fighting between the army and the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary group has resumed in Khartoum. There are fears the power struggle within the country's military leadership could also have consequences for Sudan's neighbours. Well, to find out more, I'm joined by Salome Odiambo, International SOS's lead security analyst for East and Southern Africa, and our security director, Holly McGurk, who covers West and Central Africa. So starting with you first, Salome, I wanted to ask you if you think there's potential for any of Sudan's neighbours to be drawn into the conflict. So thus far, we haven't had any instances of spillover fighting into neighbouring countries, but it's certainly something that we're continuing to very closely monitor for. There are some countries such as South Sudan or Chad that face greater risks for exposure for many reasons, including where we're currently seeing some of the most intense fighting happening right now. But otherwise, we are very closely monitoring for whether any countries become directly or indirectly involved in the conflict. This could be by just openly siding with either side of the conflict, so that being the rapid support forces or the Sudanese armed forces by providing military support. So this could be either troops or arms to either side. And so some of the countries that we're keeping a close eye on include Eritrea, Egypt, Libya, Chad, Central African Republic, Perhaps we can take this country by country. So let me, what are our concerns with regards to Libya? Libya is one of the countries on this list because its military commander, Khalifa Haftar, who controls much of eastern Libya, is known to have a relationship with the RSF and has previously provided material and training support to the group. We've already seen allegations of Libyan support to the RSF since the conflict began, including international media reports from the 19th of April that Libya had sent at least one military plane with supplies into Sudan. Haftar did indeed come out and deny any involvement, and the Libyan government has also since closed its border with Sudan. But the RSF through linked groups has had a presence in southern Libya for years to support Haftar, and so they could withdraw from Libya to support the RSF in Sudan or just provide a logistical base because the borders are relatively porous. And of course, this would then have domestic implications for Haftar and Libya more broadly. What's Eritrea's position about the conflict in Sudan? In the case of Eritrea, the government has maintained calls for peace. However, the RSF leader, Mohamed Hamdad Dagalo Himeti, was in Eritrea as recently as March for bilateral talks with Eritrea's president, Isaias of Berkey. The RSF and Eritrea also have shared ties with Russia and We've also recently been observing some social media posts on pages that are thought to be linked to the Eritrean government, and they've been displaying some sides of partiality towards the RSF. So we're very closely monitoring for whether there are any reports of Eritrean involvement that emerge. And we know that some evacuees have been taken to Egypt. So what's the situation there? Egypt has come out and they came out quite early declaring that it would not be taking sides in the conflict. But Egypt also has a strategic relationship with the leader of the Sudanese armed forces, um, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. And this relationship is really important to Egypt in large part because of Sudan's shared reservations over Ethiopia's construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, also known as the GRD, which Egypt has been heavily opposed to. And how about Ethiopia? Ethiopia and Sudan have had a challenging relationship in recent years because of the dispute over the GRD, 
but also because of cross-border fighting over the disputed Al-Pashakha region, as well as then of allegations of Sudan providing support to the TPLF during the conflict between the federal government and the TPLF in the north of Ethiopia. So this could be interpreted as Ethiopia could back the RSF. It could also then mean that Ethiopia or local Ethiopian communities or armed groups could use this period of instability in Sudan to advance their interests surrounding the Al-Fashaka dispute, which Ethiopia has actually already been accused of but denied. Or we could see some maneuvering around the GRD causing other forms of instability to prolong. However, overall an unstable Sudan is unfavorable to Ethiopia for many reasons, including the impact that it could have on heavy Sudanese investments in Ethiopia, especially given Ethiopia's current economic challenges, as well as the potential for heavy inflows of refugees amid its own struggles at managing the current humanitarian situation in Ethiopia. So this calculus will be really important in determining Ethiopia's moves. Okay, thanks very much, Salemi. Now turning to Holim Gurk, International SOS's Security Director covering West and Central Africa. Can you tell us about what Chad's stance has been since the fighting began on the 15th of April? So Chad was quite quick to announce the closure of their border with Sudan. So that's likely to officially remain closed in the coming weeks as the hostilities in Sudan persist. But the border remains quite porous. The UN Refugee Agency has reported that over 20,000 people have fled into eastern Chad. So we're likely to see further refugee flows as there are spikes in fighting on the Sudanese side of the border, and that will increase pressure on public services and access to resources in Chad in the coming weeks as well. This is nothing new for Chad. Um, They've had previous waves of Sudanese refugees who have fled Sudan due to the crisis in Darfur. So we have seen this in the past. There's also potential in the longer term that the presence of disgruntled refugees in Chad could lead to these groups becoming armed and potentially leading attacks back into Darfur. This has been the case the past. So that's certainly something we'll be monitoring for as well. The border is secured by a Chad-Sudan joint force. Uh, That force was set up because there is a history of rebel activity in that border region on both sides of the border. So it's there to contain the spillover impacts of the conflict in Sudan, but Chad remains quite vulnerable to this. The Chadian authorities have already announced that they had detained and disarmed some Sudanese soldiers after they fled into Chadian territory quite early on in the outbreak of hostilities. So although International SOS advises to avoid non-essential travel to that border area, if there is anyone in that area, they should expect heightened security at the moment. Further to this, kind of more on the political side of things, there are some quite intricate cultural and family ties between the elites in Chad and Sudan. Hemeti is of Bagara Arab origin. This is a group whose origins can be traced back to Chad um, and it has population on both sides of the the border. And there are numerous Chadian Arab fighters in the rapid support forces. So that has historically caused a lot of suspicion and distrust between Hemeti and the elite in Chad because of this, this history. And President Debbie has been quite careful to manage that by maintaining a cordial relationship with him. He's also appointed a relative of Hemetes as a general in charge of that really critical Chad-Sudan joint force. So Debbie will continue to position himself as a neutral party as the hostilities continue in Sudan. He has called for negotiations. He's called for ceasefire. 
and he's indicated that the conflict could have negative implications for Sudan's neighbours. But ultimately, these hostilities in Sudan do have the potential to degrade Chad's political structures, which are quite delicately balanced. And what's our assessment regarding the Central African Republic? So in terms of the immediate impact on CAR, the border is open, but as a result of the insecurity along the border area, the transport of goods has been disrupted. So we're seeing a sharp increase in the price of basic commodities in northern CAR, and it's difficult to get goods in from other routes in that region. We're just coming into rainy season now as well, so that will make it even more difficult. And that means that there there may be people in that region in need of humanitarian humanitarian assistance. And of course, adding to that as well, the refugee flows also coming in from Sudan into CAR. At the moment, about 3,000 people living in informal settlements who fled the fighting across the border into CAR. Politically, the government in the CAR is very dependent on Russian paramilitary group Wagner for support in maintaining their position in the country. Wagner has also been involved in mining gold in Sudan's northeast for several years. And in the course of that activity, Wagner has a relationship with Hemeti. So this really complicates as well the relationship between CAR and Sudan at the moment. We have seen reports that US and French intelligence services are quite interested in Wagner's activity in that border area and suspicious of the potential for weapons to be supplied across from CAR into Sudan to Sudan's rapid support forces. If that would be confirmed, then that would indicate a potential for increased involvement, CAR being kind of drawn into the conflict indirectly through the actions of Wagner in their territory. So back to you, Salemin. The one country we've yet to speak about is South Sudan. Are there implications for them because of this conflict? There's definitely room for the conflict to have significant implications in South Sudan. Whether or not it becomes involved, that could manifest in different ways. To start off with the implications, I mean, South Sudan is certainly one of the countries that risks facing significant economic ramifications if the conflict prolongs. To start with, South Sudan uses Sudanese ports to export its oil, upon which its economy is almost fully dependent. South Sudan is also heavily reliant on food imports from Sudan. We've also already seen disruption to its aviation industry because the northern portion of South Sudan's airspace is controlled by Sudan. And when the fighting broke out on the 15th, a few airlines, including Turkish and Egyptian airlines, temporarily halted flights to South Sudan. To add to this, as with many other neighboring countries to Sudan, such as Egypt, Ethiopia, mass inflows of people fleeing the conflict are likely into South Sudan, putting pressure on its already limited ability to provide aid. Seen reports recently, actually, that between the 22nd and the 23rd of April, at least 10,000 people had crossed over into South Sudan fleeing the conflict. The outcome of the conflict will also be important in South Sudan, because if we see a scenario in which there's a clear winner, In the event that this is the RSF, this could inspire armed groups in South Sudan that are opposed to the country's current transition to launch a rebellion against their own government. In the event that the Sudanese armed forces have the advantage, remaining contingents of the RSF could retreat into border areas with South Sudan within Darfur and potentially begin launching attacks on local communities for survival, which could then also draw in South Sudanese armed groups. You could also see a similar influx of foreign fighters into Libya with similar destabilizing effects there. So while we may not necessarily see South Sudan becoming directly involved, it definitely faces exposure to significant implications and risks if this does prolong and expand.
And Holly, with regards to our clients who may have staff working or perhaps traveling in the countries that we've mentioned, what sort of things should they be aware of because of the ongoing conflict? So what I would say is just really thinking through the possible escalation scenarios for those countries and having a really good understanding of what that might mean for your organization and for your workforce in those locations. So thinking about the different ways in which things could possibly develop and planning that out. So, for example, looking at political instability, what would a sudden deterioration in political instability look like? What would be some of the leading indicators of that being imminent within the country and what would be the actions that your organization would take if that were to materialize. Similarly, for social unrest and for an unlikely scenario of, you know, actual military spillover or some kind of conflict taking place in these neighboring countries, you know, how would that impact the security environment in border regions? How would that impact the security environment overall? mapping that out against where your staff are located, where your operations are located, and really having a clear understanding of how you would respond in that kind of scenario. And what are the triggers that would require further action, you know, an enhanced posture, further steps to ensure the safety of your workforce? That is something that I think would be helpful for client organizations to be doing at this point, just thinking through some of those scenarios and how they would react So, Salome, given the continuing fighting in Khartoum and several other areas, what diplomatic efforts have been taking place to try and negotiate an end to hostilities? There have been several calls for a cessation of hostilities and the resumption of dialogue across the region. This includes from state leaders such as Egypt, Ethiopia, Somalia, from the AU, as well as other regional blocs, in particular the South Sudanese, Kenyan and Djiboutian presidents who are leading an IGAD mediation effort have said that they intend to travel to Sudan once it's possible by air, as well as safe enough to do so in order to start a mediation. South Sudanese president has also, on several occasions, said that he's had contact with both sides of the conflict as part of these efforts. So we've discussed that, you know, there are different geopolitical positions from many countries within the region, but they have been consistent in their messaging that there should be a stop to the fighting. Evacuations have been taking place due to the ceasefire period, but do you feel that more arrangements might need to be made? Not everybody who wanted to get out had the chance to. So, yes, there have been several evacuations that have taken place. We've seen people moving out via airstrips into Djibouti. We've seen movements into Egypt through land and both by sea. We've seen land movements into Ethiopia. But as you've correctly said, whilst some people have been able to get out. There are many more that are stuck across the country, including within Khartoum, and have been unable to move out of these areas or successfully get to a border crossing and then eventually cross over as well. So there's still a lot to be done. There's still a lot of people who are requiring assistance to get out of the country, and um, we've still got many ongoing efforts to to provide that assistance. And when it comes to the fighting, what escalatory triggers are we monitoring now to make sure our clients are up to date with the latest situation? So there are plenty of triggers that we're monitoring for. Some of the key ones include any reports of spillover violence into neighbouring countries, any announcements of border closures. We've already spoken about some of these. Any foreign countries deploying troops or weapons to support either side of the conflict, in particular any attempts by Ethiopia to capture disputed territory with Sudan, any unruly demonstrations over the conflict in foreign countries, as well as then increased refugee flows and the humanitarian response thereafter. 
And finally, Holly, what's our assessment regarding the outlook for hostilities in Sudan? So we've had several ceasefires that have been agreed between the parties, which has allowed civilians to flee the area and the evacuations of foreign nationals to take place. Those ceasefires have not been without their problems. So there there has been occasional fighting even during the periods where ceasefires were in place as well. But once we see those ceasefires expire and we see most of the civilian evacuations of foreign nationals have been completed, then we would expect the intensity of the conflict to grow from that point onwards. So at that point, there will be less international leverage once the nationals have been evacuated. And also both sides will have had an opportunity to resupply and and regroup during these ceasefires. So we would expect the intensity then to really kind of kick in. International mediation attempts will obviously continue to try to bring an end to the conflict. There may be further kind of temporary ceasefires agreed upon, but a long-term resolution at this point is is looking very difficult. Uh, There's a lot of mutual mistrust. There are accusations of provocations coming from both sides and conflicting objectives. So difficult to see an imminent end to the conflict at this point. Okay, Holly, Salome, thank you so much for all your insights and analysis. Thank you. And you can keep up to date with all the latest information and updates on the situation in Sudan on our website, internationalsos.com. And from there, you can find out about our global network of assistance centres available to clients 24-7. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.